Well, good morning, Summit family, and happy Easter. He is risen. He is risen indeed. It is truly an honor to be with you this morning as we celebrate and remember risen Jesus Christ. Are you good at predictions? Well, depends on what we're predicting, right? I mean, if you were predicting the weather this week and the craziness that we had, one of my good friends here at the Summit, Kim Cochran and I, we have for years been doing this thing where we predict how many games the Cardinals are going to win. I will confess to you that over the last, however many years we've been doing this, I've been wrong every year. In fact, over every year. I'm very optimistic about the Cardinals. This year, I guess 93. So we'll see how that goes. I also love making predictions about TV shows and movies. I I love while it's happening on, especially in crime shows or movies, predicting who the bad person is or what the twist is going to be. And and I would argue I'm fairly decent at it. You know, I can pick up sometimes what it is. Although I've missed some of the big movies recently that I've watched. I Well, a long time ago, I totally missed The Sixth Sense. I totally missed The Prestige, which is a great movie. And Knives Out, that great blockbuster from a couple years ago, I didn't get that one either. Now, it's one thing when you're making predictions about the Cardinals or the weather or TVs and movies. But what about when it's in real life? When you're wrong about predicting how a relationship would turn out. I thought this would be the one. Or wrong about predicting a promotion that you might get or something that might happen at your job or wrong about a health diagnosis. It's when those predictions are unfulfilled, it can cause us to experience all kinds of emotions. When we get it wrong, there is a this disappointment, a sadness, a defeated feeling, a crushed hope, if you will, a hope lost. I wonder this morning where it is that you are hopeless. According to Webster, the dictionary, hope is a feeling of expectation for certain things to happen or a feeling of trust that something will happen. It therefore goes that if that's how hope is described, that there are the antonyms or the opposite of what it is. And intermingled with the feelings of expectation and trust are the opposite feelings that we have. Cynicism. Cynicism where we have the exact opposite of hope, where we wonder will things ever get better and and we actually think that they won't and that the world is just getting worse and worse and going to hell in a handbasket, we might say. We can't feel or experience satisfaction. Things never work out for us. Also, the opposite of hope is fear. Fear that our hopes will be only disappointed in the end. We become afraid of real hope. I wonder if that describes where you are this morning. I mean, I know we're celebrating Easter, and I am definitely going to flip this around, but if you could just for a moment enter into me. I know we we came this morning for hope to be reassured and encouraged, but I wonder where you came from this week on Friday or Saturday that, that we're showing up this morning to put on a good face of things, but we know tomorrow that we'll be right back in this world where things are not going the way we want and where we're disappointed and sad and frustrated and wish that there was something different about our lives. You know, we're willing to make predictions 
and hope for the cardinals and the weather and movies and TV. But in life, we are cynical and afraid. We've lost hope. Again, what about you? You see, the Bible, it has a little bit different definition of hope. It's a little different. Hope in the Bible isn't just a feeling. It's a confidence that God's promises will come true, an assurance that God's promises will come to pass. And and the reason that we can have this confidence, this assured confidence, it's because of Easter, because of the cross and the resurrection. This moment in history, we celebrate it because Jesus was the fulfillment of all that was promised and the fulfiller of all of God's promises. When I hope in the Cardinals that they'll win a certain amount of games, it's, it's mostly just conjecture. And I might be like, okay, well, we've got Nolan Arenado this year and Poles is back. And, you know, I could be putting a few puzzle pieces together. But in the end, it's just that. There is, there is no confidence, maybe in a, a piece or a bit of it, but no real confidence I can have that my prediction will be a reality. But when it comes to the promises of God, This is where it is different, that there is this confidence, this assurance, this this truth, this reality, that because of Easter, because Jesus is the fulfillment and the fulfiller of all of God's promises, then even in the midst of my struggles and my hurt and my pains in this life, I can know that I have meaning and purpose because sin has been paid for and death has been defeated. So the question for us this morning is how can we have a confident hope like that, a biblical hope that will not only change how we feel but actually crush our cynicism and our fear? Well, let's take a look this morning at how. I would offer to you two things that we need this morning. We need our eyes opened first and foremost and we need to encounter the story our eyes opened and encounter in the story. We're going to be in Luke chapter 24, a famous encounter that Jesus has with two of his disciples called the walk or the road to Emmaus. So let's see first how we need our eyes open. So three days before Jesus died, there were two people who lived in Emmaus, which is a town near Jerusalem, and their predictions, their hopes were lost. At least so they thought. You see, they were walking to Emmaus on Sunday, and these two people, Cleopas and and probably his wife, actually, were talking about what had happened in Jerusalem. And Jesus approaches them, but verse 16 of chapter 24 tells us that their, their physical eyes were kept from recognizing him. And the resurrected Jesus says, what are you guys talking about? Kind of invites himself into this conversation. And they stood looking sad. It's important to notice all the words that Luke uses here to describe them, that they were sad. That, that feeling of sadness, of disappointment, that, that what they had hoped for had not come to pass. And Cleopas goes on to talk to Jesus of Nazareth in Luke chapter 24, verse 9. And he said to Jesus, or Jesus asked, what things are you talking about? And so Cleopas said, concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things had happened. 
And there you see it. They had hoped that he would redeem Israel. They had hoped that Jesus would be their Savior and their Messiah. But like DJ, our associate minister, talked about last week, with, when he came in riding in a donkey, there was this immediate hope that, that Jesus was going to be some sort of king, that he was going to be the king uh, better than the Romans, and he was going to defeat Rome, and now Israel and the Jews would be back where they belonged in their rightful place. They had hoped that Jesus would be their king instead of Rome. They had hoped that he would redeem Israel. And here we see how cynicism and fear can blind us. That Cleopas and his wife, what had happened was their hopes had a semblance or a piece of what it was that Jesus had come to do. But in some ways, they were so focused on what it was that they wanted that it shadowed or it blinded them to seeing what Jesus actually had really done, which was so much bigger and broader than their eyes could see. You see, we only have eyes to see what we can imagine. And what do we usually imagine? Well, we, we usually imagine these lowercase redemptions, if you will. I mean, I mean you see it here that, that what they wanted was they wanted the redemption of Israel. But in some ways, that was such a smaller parallel to what Jesus was actually going to accomplish. And, and their lowercase redemptions that they wanted was what was hiding them or keeping them from seeing the great redemption and the great resurrection that Jesus had accomplished. We, too, have lowercase redemption hopes, don't we? To keep that theme of the R's going, we, we have hopes for relief. We have hopes for a good reputation. We have hopes for riches. We have hopes for recreation. And we, and we think that these things will be the things that will give us life, that will, that will make life have meaning. I mean, isn't that what we want? I, I know I do. I mean, I mean, let's flesh this out. Can I just be real with you guys? Like, when I think about my life and what I want and what I need... I want and need these lowercase redemptions as well. I want relief from our struggles and our heartaches and our aging. I mean, just this past week, my back, I had problems with my back every now and then. It was hurting this week, and I was having to deal with it, and I was like, ah, I just, I just, want, I just want that to go away. I just want relief from that, relief from the pain of this life. I just wanted it to stop, and, and I want reputation. I'll confess to you that one of the struggles of preaching on Easter is wanting to be known. That being something that I'm not, to present a sermon in a way that would, that would change lives and there would be revival. And instead of just coming and being who I am in Christ, that, that I, I, and I know that that would make me happy, that that would satisfy me if I had a reputation. I feel like it would. I also want riches. We want stuff. We want comfort. I finished my taxes this week and was bummed because, you know, I didn't get back the, the amount of money that I was thinking I might get back. And, and so what did that do? I was, I was like, oh, where am I going to find that money? And, and, you know, you start to think about how I need this to, to feel happy and satisfied. And then, and then finally, 
recreation. We want rest. We want peace. We want quiet from the noise of this life and all that's happening. I just want to go to the beach. And so we look to these smaller R's and we, we, we say to God, God, will you do this for me? And there's nothing wrong with asking and coming to God for, for what our needs are and what we want. In fact, the Bible's full of us inviting us to express what our hearts are to God. But, but what's interesting about this is when we get so focused on these small things, when we get so focused on these small R's, just like Cleopas and his wife had, it causes us to miss sometimes the bigger, beautiful story that we're a part of the grand picture, the grand invitation that we have through resurrection and redemption. That the greatest needs of our souls, of sin being paid for and death not being the end, that the reality of those two things came true in Christ. And and that when we set our hope, that when we have confidence in those two things, it, it helps to diminish all the other things that we need to give us meaning and purpose. I may get cynical about this life. I I may have fears in this life. And I may get disappointed. And and what happens is, is because of those things, we, we show up on Easter and we know that Jesus rose from the dead. I mean, listen to what happens even here with Cleopas and his wife. He, he goes on to say, Moreover, some women of the company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. And, and isn't this exactly how we are? That we come on Easter with, with all of our fears and our cynicism, and we say, He is risen, He is risen indeed, and we're thankful for Easter, and we go, Yeah, that's great, and Jesus is alive. But then we go right back to our disappointments and our, and our hopes that don't really help us at all and don't give us the things we need, and it lands us right back to cynicism and fear, which is right where Cleopas and his wife were. They had been told Jesus was risen from the grave, and they were still missing the point of what had happened. Are we, are you, are you missing the point of what happened here on this Sunday several thousand years ago? What did they need? They needed their eyes to be opened. They needed their eyes to be opened. That's what we see in this passage, which Luke so beautifully describes that in just a few verses here, we'll see that their eyes were opened. And, and, and the question is for us this morning, how can our eyes be opened? How can, how can our eyes be opened from focusing on the smaller R's to really being transformed and moved by the greater R's of redemption and resurrection? How can our eyes be opened to that? Well, the answer to that is we need to encounter the full story. That we see Jesus doing something incredibly unique here as he unpacks himself in the grander, more powerful, beautiful story that reveals him as our ultimate hope. It is powerful in and of itself to know that Jesus paid the penalty for all of our sin and put sin to death. But sometimes it's when we see it in the context of the greater story that it becomes even more powerful and moving and causes our hearts to burn within us. So my family really loves the Harry Potter series and the stories. And we've all watched the movies together several times. I've actually never read the books. 
And so as we're watching the movies sometimes, which I really do enjoy, I'm asking all these questions. I'm like, well, why did that happen? Or what's behind this? Or what does that mean? And, and even though I enjoy the books, or enjoy the movies, because I've never read the books, it, it means that I don't quite understand the fullness of what's happening, of, of all that's being said. And so my family's always like, read the books, read the books. You'll understand and appreciate the movies more. So a couple of weeks ago, I started reading the books. <laughs> I started book three this week. There's seven of them, and I'm excited as I'm learning more about the context and the depth, it's giving me a larger appreciation for what the story is. And, and that, in some way, is exactly what we need when it comes to following Jesus and understanding the beauty and the power of the story is that we need to encounter the whole story. That, that coming on Easter and saying, yes, Jesus rose from the dead is important, and yes, Jesus died on the cross, of course, those two things are incredible. But understanding them in the context of that this is the climactic moment in all of history this weekend, that, that years and years and, and thousands of things had been written to point us to what was going to happen on this weekend could actually transform all of our lives in a way that would make our hearts burn and our lives have purpose and meaning. And I think that's exactly what Jesus does for Cleopas and his wife. Look at verse 25. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? Beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted them in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Notice how he, he goes back and points now through how the story has been leading up and pointing to this moment in time where he would die and be resurrected on the third day. It's interesting, just in the very next scene in the book of Luke, Jesus goes to the disciples and he does the same exact thing. He, he, he engages with them and shows them that he's alive. And then he says to them, There are many words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the psalm must be fulfilled. They must come to fulfillment. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead and that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be reclaimed in his name to all nations beginning from Jerusalem. And we see what Jesus is doing here. He's, he's actually telling the grander story, inviting them to encounter the story. Maybe not just a moment, because when we take the moment out of context, maybe we, we don't quite fully see how it takes our smaller redemptions and, and allows us to understand the great redemption, the great resurrection that we can encounter and experience. So, so there's lots of ways we could unpack this here, but I would like to just take a second, if I could, and unpack what I think it was that Jesus was doing. Maybe four ways. There are more that we could look at, but I would say there are four ways that Jesus showed that he was the fulfillment and the fulfiller of everything that was written. And I want to show this in, in, in four different aspects of what we can see through the Old Testament. The first is this, is that the prediction of a promise or a problem would be fulfilled by a future event. So all throughout the Old Testament, we have lots of examples of prophecies that were given about when Jesus would come. And, you know, Google these days, you can find everything. And there are lots of ways to look up how many prophecies did Jesus fulfill. And there's some... Now, I wouldn't say disagreement, but, you know, it depends how specific you want to be. Some argue that Jesus fulfilled over 300 different prophecies in the Old Testament. 
I, I put a website on the notes on the .info site if you want to go check it out that points to 55 prophecies that predicted the birth, ministry, death, and resurrection of Jesus. 55, over 4,000 years, predictions that pointed to and explained who the Messiah would be and that he would come. Because Jesus is what? He's the fulfillment and the fulfiller. So, so how do we know? I mean, how, why, what was Jesus doing? He, in one aspect, he was going back and looking at all the prophecies and saying, look at all these things that were told and predicted about me. I'm the fulfillment of those things. All of these prophecies were pointing to me. There's a bigger story than just what happened here this weekend. And that story is, is being fulfilled by me fulfilling all of these predictions that were made about me. Well, the second thing he may have done is he may have pointed back to events because events in the Old Testament were going to be predicted to or point to or be fulfilled by a future event. Now, here's what I mean by that. One of the most significant Old Testament moments or events was Passover. And on the first Passover, God devised a way in which he could be both just and merciful at the same time. We, we, we might call it salvation through substitution. And what happened was the Jews killed a lamb and they put the blood of the lamb on the door and, and then death would pass over them. And it was that substitute that the lamb would be a substitute for them. So the Israelites every year would sacrifice a lamb for their sins. But the book of Hebrews tells us that if you thought about it, you would wonder how could an animal suffice for the sins and be the substitute for a human? The answer is it can't. And so the Passover, it pointed to a future event. It pointed to a future Messiah. It pointed to a future suffering lamb who would go to the cross, who would be killed and his blood would be shed for you and for me so that we might have hope and resurrection and redemption. And Jesus became the fulfiller and the fulfillment by becoming the ultimate lamb the final lamb that would be slain. The third way that Jesus could look back to the prophets and the law of Moses and the Psalms and reveal who he was to point to this thing is, is that he, he would say that you know, symbols fulfilled would, would be fulfilled by a future event. That there would be some symbols in the Old Testament that would point to, that would help us understand him. Much of the Old Testament, the trajectory of the Old Testament, focuses on this idea of God being in communion with, his, with humans, with people, with his creation. It started that way in the garden, that God and Adam and Eve walked together in communion. But even after sin entered the world, we see God giving instructions for a tabernacle, the place where God would dwell with man. And then, and then the first temple, the same thing, where God's presence would be and people could come and engage and encounter the presence of God. And then there was, after that temple was destroyed, there was a second temple that was built. And then Jesus comes on the scene and what does he say? He says, the symbol of the temple shows what? In John chapter 2.19, he says, destroy this temple and I will build it in three days. Why? Because he's the fulfillment and the fulfiller of the temple. We don't need a tabernacle anymore. We don't need a temple any, anymore. Why? Because Jesus is the way to communion with God. 
And then fourthly, to, to, to build even more beyond and above that, it, it, it's not just the prophecies and the predictions that point to a future event. It's not just the events that would be fulfilled in a future event. It's not just the symbols that would be fulfilled in a future event. Jesus, too, could also point to all the people in the Old Testament, and he could point to them and say, these persons point to it that someone will be fulfilled, something will be fulfilled by a future event. They point to something beautiful in him. Tim Keller, in a beautiful explanation of this, he goes through many people of the Old Testament and he points to how they point to Jesus as the fulfiller and the fulfillment of all things. That Jesus is the true and better fulfillment and fulfiller of all that we see, these, these leaders and people in the Old Testament. And if I could just quote him for a second here and, and go through some of these, it's, Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel who though innocently slain, his blood now cries out, not for condemnation, but for acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing whether he went to create, went out into the void, not knowing whither he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who was not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love for me. Now we can look at God taking his son up to the mountain and sacrificing him and saying, now we know that you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from us. Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who meditates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory. Though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it, we now have victory through that king. And lastly, but we could do more, Jesus is the true and better Jonah who was cast into the storm so that we might be brought in. And in the explanation of these four amazing and beautiful truths, what happens to Cleopas and his wife as they're sitting there with Jesus? It says their hearts were burning within them. They're like, this isn't just something that's going to change our life from day to day. This is what life is all about. This is what everything means. That this man, Jesus Christ, is God himself come in the flesh to live in this world, to break the power of sin in our lives and give us the promise of life forever resurrection verse 31 and their eyes were open and they recognized him and he vanished from their sight and they said to each other did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road while he opened up to us the scriptures and they rose that same hour returned to Jerusalem and they found the eleven who were gathered together saying the Lord has risen indeed he has risen indeed church today. Let us join together in having our eyes opened by turning them from our lowercase 
ours of relief and riches and reputation to the uppercase redemption and resurrection. Bring your cynicism and your struggles to the table with Jesus and let him break bread with you and reveal to you today, redemption is yours. Resurrection is yours. Sin has been paid for and death has been put to death. In 1602, Italian artist Caravaggio, I love that name, painted this picture I want to show you called The Meal at Emmaus. The picture captures the dramatic moment of recognition when they see who the King of Kings is, who the true Messiah is, who the fulfiller and fulfillment of all of God's promises is. If you look at it closely, one man is in the act of pushing his chair out in astonishment. But there's also this sense in which he's pushing the chair out toward us. It's as if he's creating space for us to move into the picture. Jesus' arms are extended in blessing, but in fact inviting us forward. As if it, that weren't enough, a basket of fruit is teetering on the edge of the table, demanding that we leap into the picture and catch it. Caravaggio is trying to lure us into this sense of active participation, to have our eyes opened, and more importantly, to have an encounter with the true Jesus Christ, the story revealed, fulfilled, come to fruition in him. My friends, we don't need relief, reputation, and riches arrest. We need resurrection. There is one prediction that I can make that I know will always come true, that we will rise again. Death no longer has its sting. Death no longer has any power because Jesus is risen and he is risen indeed. And now, because of that, there is something worth living for. There is meaning to my life because why? Because death cannot destroy it and bring it to an end. When our eyes are turned and opened to the greater story, our hope in this becomes assured. And we are promised a resurrection when we put our faith in what Jesus has done. My friends, Summit family, come. Have your eyes opened. Come, encounter the risen one. He is risen. He's risen indeed. Will you come? Almighty God, we rejoice that this day is not just any day to be celebrated. It is the day that changed all of history forever. It was the day that every day prior to was pointing to, and every day hence has been impacted by. And so, Father, now we pray that you would help us to let go of what we think will give us life and to be moved by and impacted by the Jesus of Nazareth who broke into our world to bring redemption and resurrection. And may we cry out from our lungs 
in rejoicing that he is risen. He is risen indeed. In Jesus' resurrected name we pray. Amen and amen.